being higher hands or people who are just doing the bare minimum because they have to do it. Not because they have sacrificial hearts, but because, hey, I'm on the job. That's my role. And he's challenging them. And we'll pick up starting in verse 22. And I guess I should have turned there. That would have been good. Too busy talking to y'all. Verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. And it's important for me to set the scene up here. This scene is taking place at the festival of dedication. That's also known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Hebrew word for dedication. And so this, is, this whole community, they're celebrating this important event that occurred maybe about 200 years before, beforehand, where the Jewish leaders, they led a revolt, a huge revolt against the, Syrian, against the Syrians, because these Assyrians came in and they brought a lot of ungodly practices to Jerusalem, and they also oppressed God's people. And so Jew, Jewish leaders, they drove out the Syrians from Jerusalem, they, re, they uh, cleansed the temple, they rebuilt the altar, and this festival of Hanukkah was in place was put in place to celebrate the righteous acts of these Jewish leaders who fought for God to liberate the people from bondage. And it's interesting that 200 years later, these very same folks, the Jewish leaders, are now being accused by Jesus of not caring for the people. And if we read on, it was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not, you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you did not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now what's going on here? The Jews, once again, are asking him, Come on, show us who you are. Show us you're the Messiah. And if you've been studying the book of John along with us, you will realize that Jesus told them over and over and over again who he was. He says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the Son of Man. He told them, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And even after that moment, when Jesus said that before Abraham was born, I am, the Jews wanted to stone him right after that moment. And the reason why they wanted to stone him is because he was, a, he was claiming to be the Lord, or a third person, they call, it, they call him Yahweh. The one who always is, the one who always will be. He was claiming to be God. And so picking back up in the story, Jesus says, I already told you who I am. I and the Father are one. And in verse 31, what happens? Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Interesting, he starts having a conversation with them, right? <coughs> we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. But if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent to the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I, unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptized in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to them. They said, though John never performed the sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many people believed in Jesus. Title of my lesson today, Yo, you your daddy's son. <laughs> no, it's daddy's son. Daddy's son. My son wanted me to throw that picture. Daddy's son. Once again, they are angry because Jesus is claiming to be equal to God. I and the Father are one. Now, I just find this, this whole conversation funny that he's having a conversation. They're, they're holding stones in their hand about to, about to stone them. And he says, hold, wait, 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 hold up. He says, why are you about to hit me with those things? Is it because of all the good works I've been doing? And they're like, no, we're not going to hit you because of those good works you've been doing. We're going to hit you because you're claiming to be God. And he's like, well, hold up. Have you read what it says about me in the, in the Bible? And he just having this the conversation with them, working things out. You know, I remember a long time ago, you know, I'm from Richmond. Come and on. and uh, I remember about to get into a fight with a friend of mine. And he picks up a brick. Is about to throw it. That, that was a common thing, actually, growing up. That moms would tell their kids, if someone's about to fight you, you get a bit, uh, a, a brick. You get a brick. And I remember saying, I said, if, if you hit me with that brick and I'm still alive, it's gonna be over for you. It's gonna be over for you. I wasn't a tough guy. I think somebody just told me that's what you're supposed to say if someone has a brick. Anyway, nothing happened. We ended up calling all, the whole thing off and went and played video games or something. I don't even remember what happened. <laughs> but Jesus here is, 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 is making them think, right? He says, hold up, let's think. You say it's blasphemous for me to say that I and the Father are one. You say that. But then Jesus quote a passage in Psalm 82 where it refers to Israel's leaders as being gods. Or the word is Elohim. And it refers to the leaders as being God because they were given this authority to judge. And Jesus says, if even in your word, sinful humans who are judges are referred to as gods, then what about me? How is it wrong for me to say I am God's son? How is that wrong? Even so, you should believe me because you see me doing the things that the Father does. And again, Jesus goes back to that argument. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. So Jesus is making it clear. It should be clear to you guys. It should be clear that I am God's son. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that came from heaven. That should be clear, not because of what I say, not because I talk about the Father, but because I do the works 
of the Father. And you guys have seen it. So that's your proof right there. Because you've seen it. I walk it like I talk it. Right? I walk it how I talk it. I live it. You see my words. I'm from the Father. And that was his proof. So my goal today, I want us to look at how Jesus was like his father. Him being God's son. And then look at who we should be as God's children. Different from who the Pharisees and the Jewish men were. So let's think about this. How was Jesus like his father? Where in 1 John chapter 4, what's the best word that's used to describe God? God is love, right? God is love. 1 John verse 4, verse 8, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love in Greek is known as agape love. It's agape love. It's a love that has nothing to do with the other person, has nothing to do with the other party and who they are. It's independent of them. It's a love that sacrificed what's necessary in order to rescue someone, in order, in order to, to bring them to the place they need to be, regardless of who they are. And that's God's love for us. That's God's love for you. God loves you, regardless of whether you love him back or not, regardless of whether you do good or do wrong, regardless of whether you read your Bible or don't read your Bible, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And that is the definition of love. Not that we love God, but that he initiated first. Now, I love what Jesus says back here in the passage in in chapter 10 of John. He says, those that are his sheep, that are God's children, says no one, no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. No one. That's so inspiring to me that our father promises that no one can snatch us out of his hand. That he'll never let us go. He will never forsake us. He'll never leave us. He'll never reject us. He'll never turn us away. One of my favorite passages, Romans 8, verse 39. Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Isn't that encouraging? Like nothing. Now, we can choose to walk away from him and face the consequences. Now, that's another story for another day. But for him, he's committed to us regardless. And this is God's mantra all throughout the Old Testament. This is like his banner. This is like his theme song all throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 34, verse 6. You can write these down. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Numbers chapter 14 verse 18 The Lord is slow to anger Abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion It's repeated Three times Even just within the book of Psalms Psalm 103 verse 8 The Lord is compassionate and gracious Slow to anger and abounding in love This is what God is known for And the Jews would have known God For being this very thing Slow to anger, abounding in love Gracious, compassionate It's the heart of our Father Agape, an engaged love, an involved love, a love that initiates, a love that pursues. That's our Father. And Jesus was doing the works of his Father. In John chapter 5, he heals a lame man who was sinful, according to Jesus himself. (laughs) He says later on, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
And in John chapter 9, he healed a blind man whom the Pharisees claimed was steeped in sin from birth. And both times when Jesus does this, the Pharisees, they come over and they try to kill him because he was claiming to be God. And both times, Jesus gives them the same answer. I'm only doing what I see my father doing. And that's proof that I'm of the father. Now, you might be sitting in your seats thinking, oh, I'm not, like, I'm not anything like these Jewish leaders here. Nothing like it. I believe. I love God. I love Jesus. Right? I believe he's, he's of God. I like both of them. I like the Father. I like them all. I would never throw stones at Jesus. He's welcome in my house any day of the week. Right? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to hurt Jesus. But I believe the ones who, are, who may be at odds with God probably the most it's not necessarily just the atheists or the Muslims or any other group that doesn't believe, necessarily believe that Jesus is God. But I believe it could be us. Yeah. It's us who claim to be Christians. Us who claim to be God's children. It's the Christians. Because the mark of being a child of God isn't reading our Bibles every day. The mark of children of God isn't coming to church. It's not listening to gospel music. <coughs> But the marks of being a child of God is that we do the works of the Father. Agape love, sacrificial love. We do the works of the Father. Love for sinners. Jesus' issue with the Jewish leaders was that they had no love for sinners. They had no love. Each time Jesus healed a sinner, they were more upset because Jesus didn't do it according to their, their Sabbath traditions, then they were about caring for the, even the person who was healed. They didn't have any love. They were not like God. They did not display agape. They were not merciful or compassionate. They were not abounding in love. They were not abounding in graciousness. And Jesus tells them, you do not lay down your life for the people. You don't. You don't care for the sheep. That's why people don't want to follow you. Are you someone that people want to follow? Are you someone that people want to follow, that, that people who are looking for God and looking for truth want to come to you? Because you pursue them and you show them the way to the Father. If not, there's a good chance that you're probably not being the children of God, a child of God, or be, being more like the Pharisee. Instead of being slow to anger and abounding in love, they were abounding in criticism. They were abounding in being critics of everyone who weren't doing the right thing instead of being the first one to help them. That's who they were. And so in John chapter 8, when the Jews claimed to be the children of the Father, Jesus told them, you're children of the devil. The devil is your father. Because the devil is an accuser. That's who he is. He's an accuser. He criticizes and that's what he does. He does it to exalt himself and to put shame on believers and to put shame on others rather than laying down his life to exalt others even if it means shaming himself. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Church, whose children are we? Whose children are we? Who are we following? Are we imitating our Father in heaven? I want to challenge us this morning of two ways that we should be following God's example of agape love. Two ways. And the first one I want to address to the dads. I want to address to the dads because I believe as dads we have the biggest of responsibilities. I believe the most serious responsibility that exists on the face of this earth. And that is parenting the next generation. Parenting children. Fathering children. And this is just me. This is my number one conviction. Not number one conviction, but it is a big conviction of mine. Is that I believe that probably the number one way that Satan is destroying this world and ruining our world is by removing the presence of a godly man from the household. I totally believe that. That's just me. Personal conviction. And my wife is reading this amazing book called God Distorted. And I started stealing it from her and reading it a lot. It's really good. But it's about the, the different attitudes of fathers and how it shapes or distorts a child's view of God and their behavior. It affects their behavior. And it talks about the passive father. It talks about the father who's not physically absent. He's not abusive, or not physically abusive either. He's there, but he's just not available to the family. Not hit home for me. He's uninvolved and unengaged. And this is not the love described in 1 John 4, right? The agape love that initiates, that pursues, that chases after. And there's a quote that says, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And I felt really challenged by this. And just to confess to you, even earlier this week, my children talked to me, <laughs> and they said, uh, you have not been available over the summer. He said, we haven't felt special. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, when we are together, you're on your phone and you're planning, you're trying to figure out this. It's been a crazy summer. But I, was, I, I felt really challenged. He said, tell me more. Let me know. Walk me through this. Walk me through this. Tell me what, what, what you need. And I was happy to hear from them. But as a father, you have to ask yourself, ask your kids, ask your wife. How am I doing with being involved and engaged in matters of parenting the children? How am I doing with uh, and being intentional by pursuing my children? You know, I won't get into a lot of the details, but one thing that the, the book talks about is uh, a lot of us might be familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer, the, one of the most notorious serial killers of our generation. Uh, he was sentenced up to 975 years in prison uh, for a lot of heinous acts he did, uh, but he was murdered two years into his sentence by, by inmate. But later on, his father wrote a book reflecting on the parenting of, of Jeffrey and, uh, and where he went wrong. And he admits to being too consumed with his own graduate work rather than being attentive to the needs of his son. And one thing he says, he says, I saw him in glimpses, a quick hug on the way in or out. 
I spoke to him in brief hellos and goodbyes tossed over my shoulder. And so I wasn't there to see him as he began to sink into himself. I wasn't there to sense, even if I could have sensed it, that he might be drifting towards that unimaginable realm of fantasy and isolation that it would take me nearly 30 years to recognize. And at the end of the book, his father pleads, he says, he says I can only say, as I must say to every father after me, take care, take care, take care. And in no way am I assuming that because of the father's passiveness that that was the sole reason why his son became a serial killer. Or that if we're passive as fathers, that's a guarantee your son will become a serial killer, okay? Or that we're responsible for our sons, for every behavior of them. But I just think it's very, it, it's worth noting that even the dad himself says that he wasn't there. And that was, you know, he should have, he should have seen the indications of his son's emotional downward spiral. Now, and, and maybe, for you, for you, maybe you're not the passive dad, right? I mean, maybe you might be more, and this is something I can relate to as well, maybe you might be more of the demanding father. The father that blames a lot and demands a lot and is critical a lot and always finding fault. Only accepting of your child's successes. Or just only showing pride and excitement when they do things right. And that's it. Um, but this can also... This can also lead to them having an unhealthy view of God. A belief that only God loves them when they perform well. You know, children will do the work of their father. We imitate our parents because that's what's familiar to us. Whether we like it or not, it's what's familiar to us, according to different psychology. And for me, this is one thing that I know I, I, I've learned is to have high standards and expect perfection. And feel, you know, I can feel intense disapproval, anger, guilt, or disgust if I fall short. And, uh, and guess what? That's a gift that I've passed on to my kids. Uh, and I naturally treat my kids that way, and it does hurt them. And this is how the Jewish leaders were, I believe. They were only concerned with the outward behavior and just perfection, uh, while neglecting mercy and love in the process. And don't get me wrong, discipline is very important. <laughs> God loves discipline. He disciplines strongly, I believe. But it's not because we have to be perfect in order to earn his affections. And so I think it's important for us to learn from our Heavenly Father and learn from Jesus and imitate the things that we see in our earthly fathers that are like our Heavenly Father. But the things that are not like our Heavenly Father, we've got to learn to change. And we have to get help to imitate. Look at godly men around us and imitate. Look at the Bible. Look at, look at God. Imitate. And the second and last thing, last way I think we can be like God's children, is that if we claim to be God's children, we should be doing what it takes to seek and save sinners. Seek and save those who are lost. You know, in each of these situations where Jesus talks about doing the works of the Father, it is him doing a miracle by healing a sinner on the Sabbath. In, both, in each of these situations, he's healing a sinner on the Sabbath. John 3.16, we all know this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What does love mean here? It doesn't say God so loved the world that he agreed with their lifestyle. It didn't say he so loved the world that he ignored their lifestyle. 
Does it say he so loved the world that he talked smack behind their back or criticized them? It says he so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. He sacrificed to bring people back to him. To help them repent and change. And this is the grace that God has shown each of us as sinners. He's shown each of us that, that very grace. Ephesians 2. Now even when we were dead in our transgressions, since God who was rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he made us alive in Christ. This is the love God has for us. Are we God's children? Are we giving up ourselves so that souls can be saved? Or are we apathetic, even judgmental, like the Pharisees? And I was telling some of the campus in our groupie, um, I was at ODU yesterday, and I was hanging out. There was a huge event going on, and there were a lot of freshmen kind of roaming around in, in, in different, different cliques. And uh, after talking to a few of them, I, I started thinking to myself, man, these guys, they're just, they just looking for girls and parties, man. That's what I felt. You know, they're almost some older guy like me coming up to them, messing up their fun, trying to talk to them about God and stuff. And that's what I felt. It's like, I'm an inconvenience. And that's what I started feeling. And I had already started judging them in my heart instead of caring for them. And right before I got into my van, I knew I needed to, pu- I needed to push through and just talk to somebody else. And uh, the next guy I started talking to, uh, right in the middle of the conversation, he says, man, we're, we're talking about Jesus, but I have to confess to you, I just came from a party just now. And he was, he was starting to feel guilty. And, and we talked and talked and talked to him about, you know, different getting together, had a different study series we do. We do. He said, so you, you want to get with me one-on-one next week? I said, yeah, that'd be cool. And uh, he gave me his info and we we're planning to get together. And, uh, but I think I just felt so convicted. I just thought, wow, did, I was so judgmental towards everyone, assuming that people don't want God. And I forget the incredible love that God had for me. It was me. I was that same dude on campus. Right? I was the same guy roaming around looking for trouble. I was the same guy looking for parties. I was the same guy getting drunk every weekend. And God loved me. And he sent someone to me to tell me the good news of Jesus. And I'm so grateful. Have we forgotten his love? We love because he first loved us. That's why we love. And as a result, we're meant to work. Church, we're meant to work. Jesus says to pray for the workers. As he, as he looked at the, the crowds and saw them having lacking direction and being lost. And he, he told his disciples, pray for workers. Ask God for workers. Pray for us, please, in the campus ministry. Pray for us to work. Pray for us to work. It's very important. You know, Sega and I, we got up early this morning and we were just walking around ODU's campus, just walking past all the dorms and walking past the apartments and neighborhoods and we were just praying and praying and praying. And a major part of my prayer was, God, just help me to work. Help us to work. Please pray for us. We got to pray as a region. Lord, help us as a region in Tidewater to work. Work is not a bad word. Work is good. God worked. That's how this world came into being. He worked. 
We got to work. If we're going to be his children, we have to work. And at the end of this passage, the great thing, if we look at the end, what happens, even though the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were like, we just want to kill you. In verse 42, it says, in that place, many believed in Jesus. In that place, he goes back across the Jordan. Many people saw what Jesus was doing. And it says, in that place, many believed in Jesus. I believe as long as we're doing the works of God, many people will believe. People will believe. It's going to happen. People will come to belief because they'll see that we're actually living what we preach. So to wrap things up, if we, if we call ourselves the children of God, then we need to do the work of our Father. 1 John chapter 4 once again says, let us, let, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's important for us to learn. As, children, as daddy's children, it's important to learn from our daddy. Learn the way he loves us. Learn the way he initiates with us. Learn the way he's faithful to us. So we can be able to have that same response to the world. And I just want to read, read this passage at the end of in Psalm 103. You can just listen. Or you can turn there if you want. One of my favorite. This is my favorite psalm, actually. 103. But as it says, I just want you to think about who our Father is as we close out. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from among us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. <clears throat>